Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know that it is to be in need and that I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you, Alan, for reading for us. Good evening, everyone. Very good to see you um, here. And uh, let me just add my welcome uh, to Pete, particularly anyone here um, visiting us for the first time tonight. You are very welcome. It's great to see you. I know there are a number here who are in that situation. We're going to be looking at those verses that we've uh, just heard read. So do keep your Bibles open there at page 1181, Philippians chapter 4. As we come to God's word, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great joy tonight of gathering around your word, the Bible, hearing you speak to us, Um, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would be making clear to each of us tonight what it is that you would say to us and how you would have us respond for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, one of my all-time heroes is um, William Wilberforce. And some of you will know all about him. He was born in 1759 and is most remembered for being the man who uh, led the campaign to abolish the slave trade, a campaign that took more than 20 years. It required extraordinary perseverance and moral courage to pursue that campaign. Uh, But actually, that isn't the uh, reason, uh, amazing though that achievement was, it isn't the reason uh, that he's one of my heroes. Neither is his starting and championing um, a whole host of campaigns and societies, though he did that, nor is the way he combined being a committed Christian with a life as a politician, though he did that. The reason that he's a hero of mine would be just the same and unchanged if he had done none of those things. William Wilberforce was a man who, through his life, suffered terribly. In terms of his career, his family life, his own health, 
uh, which left him in awful pain and physically disabled. And the reason he's one of my heroes is because despite that difficulty, the difficulty of his circumstances, he was a man who had an inextinguishable joy in the Lord. Uh, One man wrote of him uh, when he was in his old age, I never saw any other man who seemed to enjoy such a perpetual serenity and sunshine of spirit. In conversing with him, you feel assured that if ever there was a good and happy man on earth, he was one. A young lady wrote uh, to a friend in a letter saying, by the tones of his voice and expression of his countenance, he showed that joy was the prevailing feature of his own mind. Joy springing from entireness of trust in the Saviour's merits. Wilberforce suffered more than I hope any of us ever does, but he loved Jesus a lot. And everyone who met him in those later years of his life, I could have quoted many other people, everyone describes him as someone who was magnetically joyful and irrepressibly happy, hopeful, alive. I, on the other hand, get grumpy when the Wi-Fi breaks or if I spill my tea or if there's traffic. To say nothing of times of greater need, it's pathetic, isn't it? I wonder why can't I be more like Wilberforce? He's a hero of mine because he, like Paul in the passage that we're looking at tonight, had learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Do you want to know the secret? It's this, having a mindset that is shaped by the gospel. Tonight we're finishing our series looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians and throughout he has been urging us to have this gospel mindset. Chapter 2 verse 2, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Chapter 2 verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Chapter 3 verse 15, all of us who are mature should have this mindset. Chapter 4 verse 2, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He wants to shape our minds. And we've seen how he wants to shape our minds by what he said. The big themes um, of the letter, they'll come up on the screen. Unity, being humbly united together around Jesus, striving together as partners in the gospel, working together to make Jesus known, rejoicing in the Lord. Paul shows us his own deep joy in the Lord and tells us to copy him. Uh, But then he also explicitly tells us, chapter three, verse one, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And so here's my little attempt at a a summary of what the gospel mindset is uh, in Philippians. It is one of striving together as partners in the gospel, humbly united around the Lord, rejoicing in him. In the verses we're looking at tonight, the close of the letter, we see that one of the benefits and beauties of a gospel mindset is the sort of contentment, deep contentment, that I think we each long to have. And so as we come to these verses, the first thing that we see is the Philippians had a gospel mindset, or the word used here is concern. Look down at verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. This concern is the same word translated through the rest of the letter as mind. 
It's not that they're anxious or worried about Paul. It's that they're showing a renewed interest in him. They've renewed their mind for Paul. They've got the gospel mindset. Paul knows they have the gospel mindset because on multiple occasions they've sent money to support him in gospel ministry. Take a look down at verse 16. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. I think this is the clearest example in the New Testament of a church giving to support gospel ministry. In 2 Corinthians, we get an example of a church supporting others who are suffering in a famine. But here, the giving of the Philippians was directly to support Paul in preaching, proclaiming the gospel. Now, why does a church give money to support the proclamation of the gospel? Especially when it's miles away, where they'll never personally benefit from the work. Why do they do that? There can only be one reason. Their desire to give to gospel ministry was evidence of a gospel mindset. Striving together as partners in the gospel, humbly united around the Lord, rejoicing in him. And witnessing that mindset made Paul, verse 10, rejoice greatly in the Lord. You may know that some large businesses and charities, indeed churches, have an annual audit of their accounts. An auditing company comes in and pours over the accounts and paperwork to make sure everything's kind of accurate and no money's gone to the wrong place, that sort of thing. I wonder if, if the auditors were to turn up at your front door tomorrow. <laughs> Open the door, there they are. A little crowd of men in half-moon spectacles. That's how I imagine accountants. Um, Suppose they said, we have a warrant to see all of your bank statements and receipts and savings. You have to let us in and show us the paperwork. And so you let them in, you put the kettle on, and they're all there around your dining room table. They're spreading out the paper, pulling out Excel spreadsheets and tapping away at their calculators, chattering to each other in finance speak about what they're seeing. Would they turn to each other and say, look at this. What's he doing giving that much to the church for? It's bizarre, isn't it? What's he doing giving that much to Christian ministry? His his income is X. Why is he giving that much? I know for many here, that's exactly the sort of thing the auditors would say. But I I, I wonder, would would there be someone there, perhaps if there was a, imagine one of them is a Christian, who could lean over to her colleagues and say, you know, I know exactly why. I, I know exactly why they're giving that much. It's a gospel mindset. You see, that's, kind of the picture of what Paul's saying here. He's looking at the generous giving of the Philippians right from the early days of becoming Christians. Again and again, they've been giving. And he's saying, ah, that's a gospel mindset right there. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern, your mind for me. And we see next that from that gospel mindset flows a deep gospel contentment. Look how Paul describes his own contentment from verse 11. Verse 11. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now that really is extraordinary because Paul really had known what it is to be in need and what it is to have plenty. Back before he became a Christian, he was a high-flying, well-to-do Pharisee. But when he started to follow Jesus, he went tumbling down the social ladder. Hated, beaten, 
People tried to kill him, and now, where is he? He's locked up in prison. And yet, he's saying he's got everything he needs. Verse 11, I am not saying this because I am in need. Verse 17, not that I am looking for a gift. I don't need any more. Verse 18, he says, I am amply supplied. He's in prison. If it were me, I'd be scrawling away on bits of paper. Help, I'm in prison. Send food and blankets and something to cut bars with. And I'd be posting it through the window with little paper aeroplanes or something. I'd have been, I'd have been desperate. But in chapter one, he was celebrating that he being in prison meant that he, it served to advance the gospel. Everyone here knows I'm in chains for Christ. It's great. And now in chapter four, he's saying, don't send me anything. I'm amply supplied. Extraordinary. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. How, please, Paul? How have you learned that? What's the secret? The answer is that Paul had a gospel mindset that included rejoicing in the Lord. Something that enabled him to say, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He's able to be content in all circumstances because as his circumstances change, the source of his contentment doesn't. He rejoices in the Lord. The secret of Paul's contentment isn't having plenty, but rejoicing in the Lord. The other day I saw an interview on uh, the BBC app with Richard Branson, the owner of the Virgin Enterprise kind of um, group of businesses. And he was talking about his concerns over Brexit. Uh, Particularly he's worried because his view, note the political neutrality, his view is that if there's a hard Brexit, there'll be a plunge in the value of the pound against the dollar. And that would cost him hundreds of millions of dollars. He feels very vulnerable to changing circumstances. Now, the Christian author and pastor, Tim Keller, writes this, and I think it's a word for Richard Branson, but for all of us as well. Only if Jesus is your treasure are you truly rich, for he is the only currency that cannot be devalued. Isn't that a great line? As Christians, if our joy is in the Lord, if he's our treasure, we don't need to feel vulnerable to changing circumstances. They cannot touch the source of our joy. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Friends, wide swings of fortune await us all, whether financial or relational or in terms of career or health. And of course, those things will hurt. Being content doesn't mean smiling grimly and pretending everything's fine. But amidst those wide swings of fortune, if Jesus is our center and our joy, we will know a deep peace and contentment of soul. That's why the command to rejoice in the Lord is a kind one. Look at chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That's a loving command. Uh, Back in May, I was on holiday in North Devon with my family. Uh, We were by the coast, and so I decided to buy my uh, kids uh, some ice cream. Um, So we went to the ice cream place, and um, I helped them to choose the flavors that they wanted and the right cone and everything. I paid the lady, and she uh, handed over the ice creams. I received one of them, and I gave... I held it out to my youngest son, and just as he looked like he was about to take it, he collapsed on the floor in a flood of tears and screaming. And I didn't know what was going on. I was completely bemused. Even the lady at the ice cream counter was going, what's wrong with your kid? You just gave him ice cream. Why is he crying? 
Um, I didn't know what was going on. I tried to console him. You know, did, did he want a different cone? You chose this flavor. Do you want a different flavor? I was in such a kind of charitable mood. I was even offering to buy him a different ice cream with, a, with his second choice of flavor if he wanted to, just to stop him cream, screaming and crying. And, but eventually, my, my goodwill just began to dry up a bit. And I was just like, come on, seriously, what, what more can I do for you? Seriously. Can you just cheer up and be happy? Please, be happy. We're on holiday. Some of you have been there. But here's the thing. You can't just firmly command someone to be happy. You can say it till you're blue in the face. It just won't work. When Paul commands us to rejoice in the Lord always, he's not simply insisting that, with us that we kind of cheer up and rejoice. That would be a futile thing to say. He's urging us to locate our joy, our delight, our rejoicing in Jesus. We have a choice about what we delight in, about what we celebrate and talk about and sing about and think about and invest our time and money and emotional energy in. What will I rejoice in? If you're not a Christian here tonight, thank you for being here. You're so welcome. Can I cheekily prod you with the same question as well? What are you rejoicing in? What gives you joy and satisfaction and hope? Whatever that thing is, isn't it ultimately vulnerable? God doesn't tell us to rejoice in him because he's got a massive ego, but because he loves us and knows it's the best thing for us. He wants our good and our flourishing, and so he says, rejoice in me. It's only when we rejoice in the Lord that we can rejoice always. It's only when Jesus is the source of our joy that our joy can't be snatched away. He's the only currency that can't be devalued. And that's why the command to rejoice in the Lord is a loving one. Friends, where are you locating your joy? What are you rejoicing in? Even if you're content at the moment, is that contentment based on things that can change? Wide swings of fortune await us all. Rejoice in the Lord. As well as seeing Paul's contentment, we see it in the Philippians. Because they're content enough, rejoicing in the Lord enough, to enable them to be radically generous in their support of Paul. To let go of their money in support of him. Paul celebrating the, uh, he celebrates the financial giving of the Philippians to gospel ministry here. And he celebrates that because it's a sign that they have a gospel mindset which rejoices in the Lord, not in money. And in doing so, he's implicitly encouraging that behavior. And yet he does go to great effort to make it clear he's not fishing for more support. You know when you're a kid and you write a thank you letter to auntie and you've kind of got it in the back of your mind that you're hoping it will secure another present for next year? That's not what Paul's doing here. He says, I'm not in need. I'm not looking for a gift. I have received full payment and even more, I am amply supplied. He's quite clear about it. On the other hand, it's great what you're doing. But I'm not looking for a gift. So what is Paul looking for? Well, look at this intriguing thing he says in verse 17. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? Paul's saying that as they give to gospel ministry, there's a return to them. He's using a financial picture there. What may be credited to your account? What's he talking about there? Well, as we answer that question, 
what he's talking about points us to another way that having a gospel mindset will lead to gospel contentment. It may be that he's saying as we invest in gospel ministry with our money, as the Philippians were doing, we receive the dividends of of joy over gospel growth as people become Christians. A far greater joy than we had experienced if we were sitting on the sidelines in terms of giving. Or he may be looking forward to a future reward when Jesus returns. Think of the parable of the talents that Jesus told in Matthew 25. A master gave each of his three servants a sum of money to invest while he went away. And when he returned, two of them had invested the money well and so were able to return it to him with growth, with a profit. And to those servants, do you remember what he said? Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's joy. Both of those are biblical ideas. Perhaps Paul's got both in mind. Either way, Paul's being quite clear that investing in gospel ministry now will result in some kind of future reward. That's why, through this letter, Paul's spoken of their partnership with him in the gospel. Not their charity towards him, their partnership with him. That partnership word is one of uh, of a business partnership, and it comes up a couple of times in our passage. It appears as the word share in verse 14 and in verse 15. Giving to gospel ministry isn't charity, it's partnership. It produces return on the investment. I love watching Dragon's Den on TV. Any of you watch that? It's been on for a very long time now. Um, People go in and make a business pitch to the dragons, Deborah Meaden, um, that's the only one whose name I can remember now it comes to it. Um, and uh, they, they pitch their business idea with the hope of receiving their investment. You never get someone stand there and say, I'd like £100,000 for a 0% uh, stake in my charity. That's just not how it works, is it? The dragons are looking to enter into a business partnership and receive a return on their investment. When we give our money to the work of the church... We're not donating to charity, we're investing in a partnership. We do it because we have that gospel mindset of wanting to strive together for the faith. If we think of church as a charity, well, we might be content to give a little of what's left over at the end of the month, but when we see it as an investment in a partnership with a heavenly reward, we'll want to plow as much into it as we possibly can. And this is the other way that having a gospel mindset will lead to gospel contentment. We'll be content to have little now because we're investing for a future reward. I was speaking with someone just the other day who's in the startup phase of a new business venture. And they're pouring lots and lots of their own money into their business for exactly this reason. They're content to have very little to spend on themselves right now because they're anticipating a return on their investment. The Philippians were investing generally in in support of gospel ministry. And Paul encourages them in that, both because it shows they're rejoicing in the Lord, not in money, but also because they'll receive a spiritual return on their investment. It's worth saying at this point that this is a million miles from the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is something that some people around the world Um, teach by mishandling the Bible to try and persuade people to give them money with the promise that God will reward them with greater financial prosperity if they do. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Paul is teaching here. Firstly, we cannot purchase or earn God's favor. 
we were singing earlier, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is the only thing that can win our salvation for us. And Paul is very clear that God's favor is entirely by grace. Back in chapter one, verse six, he says he's confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God began the work. And in chapter two, verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. So then becoming Christians is God's work. And the very idea of giving to support Paul in the first place was something God had put in their minds and worked in them. And so God doesn't reward us for anything in ourselves. He produces generosity in the Christian, then looks at his work with gladness and blesses it with undeserved rewards. One theologian puts it like this. I think this is brilliant. He says, God crowns his grace with grace. That is, he looks at the results of his own grace and rewards us for it, even though we did nothing to deserve it. He crowns his grace with grace. It's all by grace. Secondly, there is no promise here of material reward. Paul says in verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs, not all your wants. There is no promise of material prosperity. And thirdly, the kind of generosity Paul's talking about comes from a thankful heart, not a self-serving one. At the end of verse 18, Paul describes their giving as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. That language is pointing to the idea of what's called a thank offering. In the Old Testament, the Israelites could make sacrifices for a number of things, most commonly um, to uh, atone for their sins. But there was also this other um, type of offering called a thank offering. No one had to give a thank offering, but it was simply a way for people who wanted to to express their gratitude, their thanks to God. And that's how Paul describes their gift here, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. So Christians give out of gratitude on the basis of grace to a God they trust to meet all their needs. And as we do that, he crowns his grace with grace. Paul encourages them to invest in gospel ministry, not because he wants their money, but because, verse 17, I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I recently heard someone um, say this, and I think it's a really helpful thing. They said, our spiritual need to give is far greater than the church's financial need to receive. I need to give money because when I release my grip on money, money loses its hold on me. I love it a little less. I rejoice in the Lord a little more. And that's great because if my joy is in the Lord, I can be content in all circumstances. And I need to give because I'm not donating to a charity. I'm investing in a partnership that leads to a spiritual return. By grace, God will reward the generous giving he produces in us. How can we be content in having little now? By rejoicing in the Lord, not stuff. And by seeing that it's well worth having little now as a result of investing in something that will have a great return. I think it's really helpful that we're looking at this passage tonight because tonight isn't a giving Sunday. We're not asking for money for the building project or for Vision 2020. There's none of that. And so a bit like Paul, I can say we're not looking for a gift. That's not tonight. But Paul does want to encourage us to invest generously in gospel ministry because it's for our good. 
Our spiritual need to give is far greater than the church's financial need to receive. And so it's helpful to ask ourselves tonight, are we rejoicing in the Lord such that we experience the sort of gospel contentment that enables us to be radically generous? And do we see giving to gospel ministry as donating to a charity or investing in a partnership that will lead to a great reward? Do we see that in a way that allows us to be content with having little now? A gospel concern will overflow into a gospel contentment. And finally, it will lead to a gospel confidence. Paul expresses in himself and encourages in the Philippians a confidence in the Lord to supply all their needs. Look again at what he says in verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You see, Paul isn't confident in himself. You know, I can tough out this time in prison. No, he's not self-confident, he's God-confident. He's confident that he'll be divinely strengthened to do anything and everything that God calls him to do. And he encourages that same confidence in the Philippians. Look down at verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. They might have been worried that their generosity would leave them without sufficient resources in the future. But Paul encourages them that God will satisfy all their needs. Friends, I don't know what needs each of us is facing at the moment in the room. I'm sure there will be various needs, great and small, financial, spiritual, emotional, medical, relational. But God's word to us tonight is that there is not one thing you need that God will not supply. There's not one thing he calls you to do that he won't also equip you for. We may not be confident in ourselves, and indeed we shouldn't be, but we can be confident in him who gives us strength and meets all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Gospel concern leads to gospel contentment and a gospel confidence. I don't think I've ever enjoyed looking at Philippians so much as I have over recent weeks. It's mainly because I haven't been preaching it. Andy's been preaching it. It's been wonderful. I've loved it. Uh, Paul's been encouraging us to have this gospel mindset of striving together as partners in the gospel, humbly united around the Lord, rejoicing in him. And I want to really encourage uh, each of us here tonight as this series draws to a close, not to allow our consideration of this letter to stop tonight. Can I urge you to go home and read Philippians right through? It will take you 15 minutes at the most, I should think. It could be your quiet time tomorrow morning or every morning this week, perhaps. Can I encourage you to do that? And as you do that, to pray for the Lord to give you increasingly the gospel mindset that we see in this letter. As he answers that prayer, it'll be a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing in this church that will cause us, like Paul, as we see it, to rejoice greatly in the Lord. And one of the benefits and beauties of having this gospel mindset or concern, as we've seen tonight, will be a growing contentment in all circumstances and confidence in the Lord for all we need. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to see in us as a church. And as friends and family and neighbours and colleagues see our striving, our humble unity, our rejoicing in the Lord, many will recognise ah, a mindset, a 
gospel mindset that points to the truth of the gospel. And as Paul puts it in verse 20, that will be much to the glory of our God and Father forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time looking at this letter to the Philippians. We thank you for the gospel mindset we see exemplified by Paul and the Philippians, people like Epaphroditus and Timothy in chapter two. But most of all, for the one that each of them was emulating, our Lord Jesus. Father, we rejoice over him this evening for all his excellences, his brilliance, his perfect love, his selfless courage. What a perfect king. We long to be growing in our unity with each other around Jesus. Make us one and strengthen us to strive together as partners in the gospel. Finally, Father, as you do give us this gospel mindset, also give us a deep contentment in all circumstances, the good, the bad, the middle of the road, because Jesus is the unshakable source of our joy. And may all this be now and forever to the glory of your name. Amen.